I want to begin this morning with uh, a quote from one of the greatest sword fighters who ever lived. His name is Inigo Montoya. Here's the quote. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. As an aside, if you've never seen The Princess Bride, I highly recommend it. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Here's the thing. The church in America today loves to throw around certain words, and often the words we use do not mean what we think they mean. And two of the most often misused words appear in our passage this morning. And so before we open it, I want to talk about these words. They are the words kingdom and church. Kingdom and church. And I want to make, take a minute this morning to make sure that we, we know what these words actually mean. So first, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? The announcement of John the Baptist of Jesus and of Jesus' disciples was the kingdom of God is at hand. We pray as the Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come. We sing songs about the kingdom. We hear people talk about kingdom ministry, kingdom work, building the kingdom. But what does the word kingdom actually mean? Well, here's a simple biblical definition as we talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God. In the New Testament, the kingdom isn't first and foremost a place, as if the kingdom's over there in that country. It's not first and foremost a domain. The kingdom represents God's reign and God's rule. And yet it's, it's a little more than just that, because we know that God actually rules everything everywhere, so we can't just say it's where God rules, or else everything would be considered the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about his redemptive reign. It's the rule of God that comes down to a sin-broken world and makes things right again. It's the rule of God redeeming and restoring what has been undone by sin. That's the biblical notion of the kingdom of God. It's his rule and reign coming to the earth and making things right again after we have broken them in our sin. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God. And there's another element we need to understand about the kingdom. The scripture teaches that the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. It's already present and it's not yet arrived. Now I think it's fairly easy for us to see that the kingdom is not yet here. The world is still filled with sin and brokenness, with evil and with death. We are still looking for the kingdom of God to come and for Christ to set everything right. And that will happen when he returns. We're just saying about that blessed hope. We are, we are still waiting for the kingdom to come. But there is a sense in which the kingdom is already here. It's already here in the people who have repented of their sins and submitted to Christ's rule over their lives. The kingdom of God, the redemptive reign of God, is already here in the people who have repented of their sins and submitted to his reign over their lives. And that leads us to the second term we need to define, which is the church. What is the church? This is an increasingly debated question in the age of online church services, virtual church communities, multi-site churches, and whatever else someone will come up with. We can take our cue first from the basic meaning of the word itself. The word church comes from the word ecclesia, literally means gathering or assembly. It could be used in secular context or religious context to refer to a gathering of people. It's a word to describe people who have come together in a distinct community. 
a distinct gathering. Well, biblically speaking, what is the church then? Based on that simple definition, well, the church is the assembled citizens of God's kingdom. The church is the assembled citizens, the gathered citizens of those who have submitted to God's redemptive reign in their lives. It's the people who have gathered together under his reign. That's what the church is. And again, there are two ways that the scripture speaks about the church. The universal church and the local church. The universal church describes all true citizens of God's kingdom from every time and every place who will comprise together the end times assembly of God's people when the kingdom fully comes. One day, the whole church will be revealed when Jesus returns and all the saints from all time will be assembled together before the Lord in worship. That's God's church. That's the church. It's it's, it's the people of his redemptive reign. The local church, on the other hand, is the visible manifestation of the universal church in a specific time and place. The local church makes visible here and now that universal reality. Local churches are outposts of the kingdom of God. They, they, they are embassies in the world, so to speak, of, of the kingdom. That's where the kingdom is. That's, that's kingdom territory. Out there is the world, but this is kingdom territory where God's people have gathered under his redemptive rule. Local churches are where citizens of the kingdom gather together to make that redemptive reign visible in the world. With these definitions in our minds, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we're continuing our series through Matthew, following the fulfillment, and we are in a very significant part of Matthew, really a watershed moment in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we saw Jesus ask the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And and they told Jesus that the people generally believe that he's some sort of prophet of God. And then he made it personal. He said, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who spoke up and declared for the first time, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We talked about that for a while last week. In other words, you are the unique Son of the one true God who came to be the Savior King that God promised through the prophets. That's what Peter's confessing. You you are the unique Son of God, the only begotten, beloved Son of God who who came to us, took on flesh in order to be the promised Christ, the, the promised fulfillment that God that God predicted through the prophets to be our Savior King, to redeem us from all of our brokenness and to bring in that kingdom. That's what Peter confessed last week. That was was the the kernel of all that he confessed that then is expanded throughout the New Testament from there. We saw last week that Jesus commended Peter for this confession. He told Peter that this confession was the result of God's gracious gift of revelation, that he had been blessed by God with this confession. But what we're going to see today is that this confession of Peter was much more than just a personal, private revelation for Peter. It would become the defining truth of Christ's people, the defining truth of the citizens of Christ's kingdom, the defining truth of the church. So let's read in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Verses 16, 18, and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Read it one more time. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here's the main idea this morning. Christ is building his church, and we get to join him. Christ is building his church, and we get to participate in what he is doing. That's what this passage is teaching us. Like a master architect, Christ is adding stones to his house. He's laying brick after brick and constructing his temple. He's gathering his people from every corner of the earth into one assembly of people who are the citizens of God's kingdom. This is what Jesus Christ is doing in the world today. And not only do we get to be included as stones in the church he is building, we actually get to play an active role in the building of that church. We get to participate in what he's doing. Christ is building this church and we get to join him. But here's the problem. That we need to know what it means to join him in his church building work. We could, without realizing it, just begin building our own little church. Our own little kingdom that is disconnected from his church. Or we might give up in joining him because things get hard. And we don't want to do that anymore. Or we may act like the building of his church depends on us and not on him. Or we might confuse what his role is with what our role is in building his church. These are all pitfalls that we could fall into as we seek to join him. So as Christ calls us to join him in his church building work, this morning we're going to see four things that we need to know if we're going to be faithful in participating in that work. Four things that we, Redeemer Church, need to know to be faithful in our participation with Christ as he builds his church. First thing that we need to know, we must confess what Peter confessed. We must confess what Peter confessed. You know, there are literally hundreds of churches in our area. How many of you passed at least five churches on the way here this morning? Just raise your hand. Yeah, mo- most of you. How, how many, anyone passed 10? Maybe 15, 20? I mean, there are a lot of churches in our area, right? And 10 years ago this summer, Anderson Bible Church and Grace Fellowship Church decided to plant another church. And that church was us, Redeemer. Why would they do that? Why would anyone think that we should plant more churches in a place that is already overrun with churches? Well, here's why. Because not all churches are true churches. Not all churches actually belong to Christ's church. Of the hundreds of churches in our county, a great number of them are not assemblies of kingdom citizens. Rather, they are assemblies of people who are still lost in their sins. Now, which ones that is, we, we, we often don't know. A lot of times we don't know what's happening in a building, but we, we do know some that are not preaching the gospel, are not true assemblies of Christ. And this, well, this, raises, that, this raises that question, how do we know which churches are true churches, which churches are false? How, how do we know which churches belong to Christ's church, which ones do not? And really, who's to say? I mean, who's to say you're a true church, you're a false church? Is that not arrogant? Look again at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Christ tells us where he's building his church. On this rock. 
Any true local church must be built on the same rock upon which Christ is building his universal church. Of course, that means we need to define what rock is, right? And so let's do that now. Ever since the Protestant Reformation, there have been two different answers to this question. What is the rock that Christ is building his church on? One view is that the rock is Peter himself. And this makes sense from the text because the name Peter literally means rock. Jesus is the one who gave Peter that name. And now he says essentially, you are rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. It makes sense that, that Jesus would, would say this to Peter. And, and this is why he gave him that name. And, and it makes sense why someone would say, Peter's the rock. You are rock. On this rock, I'll build my church. Well, the other view is that the rock is not Peter, but rather the rock is the truth of verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What Peter just confessed says, you're Peter, and on this rock, i.e. your confession, I will build my church. The problem is those who take this view often minimize Peter's role entirely. They're usually reacting to the Roman Catholic teaching that misuses these verses to establish papal authority, and, and, and so they say, it's not Peter. But the answer is not one or the other, it's both. The rock is not Peter himself. But it's also not the confession apart from Peter, as if we can separate the two. The rock is the confessing Peter. The rock is Peter and his confession. And this is exactly what we see play out in the book of Acts. Think about the book of Acts. Peter is the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches the gospel. And 3,000 people are added to the church that day. The church is born that day. And then later, Peter is the one that Christ calls to go to the house of the Gentile, Cornelius. And again, he proclaims the truth about Jesus, and the Gentiles believe, and they become part of the church. So historically, it's easy to see that Peter's preaching of Christ clearly was Christ's plan for building his church, and his preaching was foundational. It was a rock for his church. But what all this means for us today is simply this. If Christ is building his church on the rock of Peter's confession, then that means that we have to confess what Peter confessed. We must confess what Peter confessed. Our confession must also be Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living gods. Our confession must be the true gospel, the good news of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the fundamental marker of a true church. What gospel do they confess? If we confess the true gospel, then we can be assured that we are a part of the church Christ is building. If we confess the true gospel, then we can be sure Christ is building his church here. Now practically, what does this look like for us? Well, first it establishes the importance of statements of faith, the importance of doctrinal statements. There is this tendency in churches today against creeds, against confessions, against statements of faith. You might hear someone say, we just, we just believe the Bible. Well, that sounds really good, right? But how many churches today say they believe the Bible who actually don't believe the gospel, who believe different things about the person and work of Christ? The reality is the Bible needs to be interpreted, and doctrinal statements give clarity as to what the church believes the Bible actually teaches. And just to, just to add to that, we're, we're going to say it later. We, we are going to give the Apostles' Creed later in our service. We're going to say that. Why? Because we confess what the church has always confessed, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if, and if we are confessing something different than what the church has always confessed, then, then really we aren't connected to that rock that Christ is building on anymore. 
And so we, we stand in a, in a line. We're non-denominational, but we stand in a line of true churches, and we stand on the doctrines that have been passed down to us. Well, second, because we, we don't just have doctrines hanging over here in midair, those doctrines need to be founded on the scriptures. This means we always need to preach the scriptures. A true, healthy church will always preach the Bible. And, and in preaching the Bible, they're not just going to find a verse and start sharing some somewhat connected thoughts on that verse. No, they're going to explain what the Bible says. They're going to read it, explain it, show what it means so that the people listening can say, yes, that's what it means. I see it for myself. Ephesians 2.20 says this, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So when we think about that verse in relation to what he says to Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church, Peter was the leader of the apostles. The apostles wrote the New Testament scriptures. These are the apostolic writings. So the true gospel is the gospel that the New Testament teaches us. And so if we're going to preach the true gospel, if we're going to preach Peter's confession, then we must preach it from the scriptures. And we must make it evident from the scriptures that this is the gospel. Do you see it for yourself? This is the gospel. That's how someone knows that a church is truly confessing what Peter confessed, because that church is basing that confession on the actual scriptures that Peter and the apostles wrote. And so, church, the first thing we need to know, if we're going to participate faithfully in Christ's church-building work, is that we must confess what Peter confessed according to the scriptures that Peter and the apostles wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. Our confession should always be, Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. And our practice should always be, it says so in the scriptures. Second, we will face opposition and it will fail. We will face opposition and it will fail. It did not take long after Peter preached on the day of Pentecost for opposition to appear. Within days of proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior, Within days of the church being born, Peter found himself imprisoned for his testimony. Shortly after that, he was imprisoned again, and this time he was beaten before being released. Not long after that, Stephen became the first martyr of the early church, and the church was scattered from Jerusalem as a great persecution arose. History tells us that 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith, as well as Paul, the only one who was not martyred was John, who was instead sent into exile. The story of the New Testament church and the story of the early church after the New Testament is the story of a continually persecuted church. And yet, through the persecution of the early church, the church did not wither and die. The church actually grew and expanded in such a powerful way that the early church father Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What an amazing statement. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they kill us, the more we grow. That was the testimony of the first 300 years of the church's history, and it's vindicating to Jesus' words at the end of verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This image of the gates of hell is found in both the Old Testament scriptures and in ancient literature outside the scriptures. It's consistently used as, as a metaphor for the power of death. Is there anything in human experience more powerful than death? 
Since Adam and Eve, death has been the unavoidable conclusion to the life of every person. And so when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, here's what he's saying. Even the most powerful opposition will not be victorious against the church that I am building. As one commentator puts it, Jesus is saying nothing in this world or the next can overthrow the church. Nothing in this world or the next can overthrow the church. Well, a few observations I want to make here, church. The first thing we need to notice is that Jesus is implying that the disciples and the church will face powerful opposition here on earth. I mean, the first thought might be, wait, what do you say about the gates of Hades? <laughs> Trying to prevail against us? There, there is opposition. This is a theme that constantly comes through the, the scriptures. Jesus told the disciples the world would hate them just as it hated him. Paul reminded the churches he planted that it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter wrote, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He said, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, because the church is the outpost of God's kingdom in a world that hates God, the world will persecute the church. Because the church is the assembly of people who love the reign of God, Satan, who hates the reign of God, will oppose the church. Christ's church should expect intense opposition. We've said several times in recent months how we've been experiencing opposition here at Redeemer Church. We've felt it in a more intense way than we have felt it before. Whether it be through a break-in to someone's car, accusations of heresy, the painful process of church discipline, the departure of members, or just the weight of personal loss that many of you have experienced recently. We are experiencing intense opposition. And here's the thing, we shouldn't be surprised. This is intense, but it is not strange. This is par for the course. I know I've felt many times over the last few months, when are we going to reach the other side of these difficulties? Just when are we going to get through to the point where this isn't happening anymore? When will we get back to a season of peace and not of warfare? Church, though God may grant quieter times, seasons of peace, we need to embrace that on this earth our warfare will be continual. On this earth, the church's warfare will be continual. And at the same time, we must not be discouraged by that. Because Christ has told us that even the fiercest opposition will fail in the end. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. In the end, the opposition will fail. The victory is yours, Lord. Christ does not promise that participating in his work will be easy. In fact, he promises that it will be exceedingly difficult. But what he also promises is that his work will succeed. His building will be completed. His church will one day be fully gathered. And it's only by faith in the promise of final victory that we can persevere through the intensity of opposition. I'm going to say that again. It's only as we believe in his promise of final victory that we will persevere through all the intensity of opposition that we experience. Listen to the words of the old hymn, The Church's One Foundation, as it describes both our present warfare and our final rest as Christ's church. 
It says, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. That day is coming. Christ promises that day is coming. In John 16, he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 Peter 5 says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These are the promises of Christ to his church. That day is coming. The opposition will fail. Persevere through it because he's building his church. We will be opposed it will fail. We need to know that if we're going to be faithful in joining him in his work. The third thing we need to see today is that we have been given the keys for a reason. We have been given the keys for a reason. So there are two reasons that we have given someone keys uh, to our house. One is just to family who's in town and we just want them to have keys in case they ever need to get in, in case there's ever an emergency. And generally their keys just stay on their key ring unused. But sometimes we've given the keys to someone when we go out of town because we have a fish and we have many plants. And we give the keys to that person because while we're gone, we want them to feed the fish and water the plants. And when we come back, our hope is that we will not have a dead fish or dead plants. In verse 19, Jesus tells Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Jesus did not give Peter these keys in case of emergency, just to stay on his key ring unless something went wrong. No, Jesus gave Peter these keys for a reason. He gave Peter these keys so that Peter would use the keys for a purpose. Well, let's talk about what the keys actually are. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Let's remember the definition of the kingdom that we started with. The kingdom of God is that already not yet reality of the redemptive reign of God. And here... This kingdom is depicted as having a set of keys. Jesus says there's keys to this kingdom. This teaches us that the kingdom of God, this redemptive reign of God over his people, it's something that needs to be entered into. It has gates, so to speak. Not physical gates, but gates that need to be opened in order to get into it. Do you realize that none of us are natural-born citizens of the kingdom? I would imagine that most of us, if not all of us, in this room were born in the United States. We are citizens of, the, of this country. We're going to celebrate the 4th of July tomorrow. But if you wanted to become a citizen of another country, you would need to be granted citizenship. Well, that's the case spiritually in reference to the kingdom of God. Citizenship in God's kingdom is something that must be granted to you. We are all outside the kingdom. We must be given entry into the kingdom. Well, how do we do that? Who is it that gives us entry into the kingdom? Well, it's whoever has the keys of the kingdom. The person with the keys is the one that's able to open the gates of the kingdom and let us in. And Peter, as the first one to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, was the first to be given these keys. And we see exactly how Peter used these keys in the book of Acts. How exactly in Acts did Peter open the way into the kingdom for those who were outside of it? Well, he preached the gospel. He proclaimed Christ. He declared to people, repent and believe in Jesus, for there's no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved. So do you see what the keys of the kingdom of heaven are? 
The keys stand for the good news of Jesus Christ. They're the gospel. This means that the keys of the kingdom are actually the same thing as the foundation of the church. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not only are we built on that confession, but Jesus built his church through that confession. He built his church through the proclamation of that confession. It was as Peter preached the gospel that lost sinners had the gates of the kingdom of God open to them. And when they entered into the redemptive reign of God, they became part of Christ's church. Now, when you notice that while Jesus does promise to give Peter the keys of the kingdom, he doesn't say that Peter's the only one who will ever receive them. He doesn't say it to you and no one else. These keys were given to Peter as the first one who opened the way into the kingdom historically, but the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, that makes clear to us that we are all charged to use the keys of the kingdom. The whole church has been given the keys of the kingdom because we've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been given the gospel not so that we can just confess it in private, but so that we can proclaim it to others. It's not just to stay on our spiritual key rings unused in case of emergency. No, we've been tasked with opening the doors to the kingdom of God by proclaiming to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. By proclaiming that the only way to be part of his kingdom is through his death and resurrection. By calling the lost to repentance and faith in him alone. And church, I want to ask you, have you been using the keys that God has given you? Have you been using the keys that Christ has given Have you been faithful to go to the lost and proclaim the way into the kingdom of God? This is how we participate in Christ's church-building work. And this morning, if you have been disobedient to that purpose, to use the keys, to proclaim the gospel to others, then this morning I call you to repent of that sin and to trust in Christ for forgiveness and to commit by faith to begin sharing the gospel with others again. We have been given the keys for a reason. Let's use the keys and preach the gospel to others. And finally, the fourth thing we need to see this morning is that we are stewards of Christ's authority. We're stewards of Christ's authority. Let's say, as a given, that we are rightly using the keys of the kingdom. We are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the lost. We're calling sinners to repentance and faith. We are opening the way. Well, what happens next? What, what happens when someone actually responds to that gospel we preach with repentance and faith. What then? That's what Jesus' final words are about at the end of verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are two questions we need to answer about these words from Jesus. First, what does it mean to bind and loose? And second, what's the relationship between our binding and loosing here on earth and the binding and loosing that takes place in heaven? Let's just tackle these questions one at a time. First, what does it mean to bind and loose? Well, think about the language itself. To bind means to tie something up, right? It means to tie something up or to, to bring something together with something else. And to loose means to let something go. So the question then is, what's being tied up or bound? And what's being let go or loose? What's, what's being bound to what? What's being loose from what? Well, the answer is everything to do with the keys of the kingdom. As we use these keys, as we proclaim the good news of the kingdom... And as people respond to that message in repentance and faith, then here's what Jesus is saying. We are given the privilege and responsibility to bind them to his church. We are called to bind them to his church. And the way we do this is through baptism and through membership. In baptism and membership, 
This is what Jesus said. Go make disciples, baptizing them. Not just make disciples and then let them go live on their own. No, baptize them. Bring them into the church and teach them to obey. Bring them into this community of people. This is how you bind people. The church is binding those who have confessed and believed to itself, to the assembled citizenship of God's kingdom. That's what we're doing. We're binding. The church is declaring about that person who believes and we baptize and, and to join the church. We're declaring you have entered into the kingdom of God. And therefore, you belong to Christ's church. You have, you have come under the redemptive reign of God, and therefore, you are a citizen in Christ's church. This is the responsibility that we have when someone responds to the gospel we proclaim. To baptize them and to declare in baptizing them and in them joining the church, you are a member of Christ's kingdom. That's what happens in baptism and in membership. One reason we know this is what Biden refers to is because of how Jesus uses this same expression again in chapter 18. 18. This time with reference to losing. Turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. These verses describe the process of church discipline. They're addressing what happens inside the church. They're addressing how we should handle it when someone who professes to be in the kingdom doesn't live as a citizen of the kingdom. And Jesus outlines a step-by-step process for the church Verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So that's step one. Go by yourself to that person and call them to repentance. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, so if they don't repent, then you bring someone else and you call them to repentance again. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's the third step. You tell the whole church this person is refusing to repent of their sin. Now the whole church is calling them to repentance. And if that person still does not repent, verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If that person finally does not repent, Jesus says the church must regard them as an unbeliever. And it's at this point, look what comes next, it's at this point that Jesus says again, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here in Matthew 18, at the end of church discipline, the church is loosing that unrepentant person. They had bound them in church membership. Now they are loosing them. They are untying them from the church. They're declaring to them, we can no longer affirm that you are a citizen of God's kingdom because of your unrepentance, and therefore you are excluded from membership in Christ's church. The church uses the keys of the kingdom. They preach the gospel. When someone repents and believes, the church binds that person to itself through baptism and membership. But if that person later begins to live in unrepentant sin, then the church looses that person from itself through church discipline. This is the responsibility Christ gives to us, to bind people to the church and to loose people from the church. Now for the second question, Jesus says that what we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And likewise, what we loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? It sounds like Jesus is saying that the decisions of the church on earth will be upheld in heaven. Does this mean that God is constrained by human decisions? Does this mean that God must save whoever we say is saved and God must condemn whoever we say is condemned? No, and here's, here's why that's not what it's saying. Because the binding and loosing is only legitimate when the keys of the kingdom are being used faithfully. The binding and loosing is based on the gospel and on the word of God, not on human judgments and opinions. 
Our authority is a stewarded authority from Christ that rests on the confession of the gospel and hinges on the right application of that gospel. So it's only as we profess that Jesus is the Christ, as we, as we rightly use the keys, that we have any authority to bind and loose. If, if, if we stray away from the gospel, then that loses its authority. And here's why this is so important, church. Here's why all of this is so important for Christ's work of building his church. And I'll phrase it as a question. Who gets to say that you're a Christian? Who says you're a Christian? According to this passage, only Christ's church has that authority. Only Christ's church has the authority to declare about someone else based on your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm that you have entered into the kingdom of God and are a member of his true people. Listen, there are so many people who say they're Christian, but the only authority behind that profession is what they think about themselves. I'm a Christian because I say I'm a Christian. Listen, we don't have the authority to declare our own citizenship in God's kingdom. I don't and you don't. Some of these people might be true followers of Jesus, but who really knows? How do you know you are believing the true gospel? How do you know that you aren't deceiving yourself? How do you know that you aren't living in unrepentant sin? Christ has entrusted that authority to his church. And if we're going to faithfully participate in what he's doing, then we must steward that authority through faithful practices of baptism and membership and discipline. You you want someone to be able to say to you, we affirm that you're believing the true gospel. We see that you're living as one of Christ's members of his kingdom. We, we, we declare that with you because Christ has given the keys of the kingdom to the church and he's given the authority of binding and loosing to his church. This is part of our responsibility. That's why we practice membership and discipline the way we do. And so this morning, if you have believed in the gospel, but you've never been baptized, or are not a member of the church, then I want to call you this morning to pursue baptism, and to pursue membership, so that you can be affirmed by Christ's church that you really are a citizen of God's kingdom. Let others walk with you in that, and, and, and say, we affirm your faith, and we We declare on the basis of Christ's authority in the word of God, on the basis of the gospel that that Peter confessed, that you are confessing, that we confess that you are a member of Christ's church. Pursue baptism and membership to affirm that. And if you're a member of the church, if you have been baptized, then I also want to remind you this morning that you must continually repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. If we have truly entered into the kingdom of God, then we must live as citizens of the kingdom of God here on earth. And we need to hold each other accountable to do so. This is how we participate in Christ building up his church. He is building his church. He's building it on the rock of Peter's confession. And though it faces intense opposition, that opposition will fail. Christ is adding people to his church. He's doing it as we open the doors of the kingdom by proclaiming the gospel and binding those who truly believe to his people. But ultimately, it all comes back to those words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are a church that centers on those words. We we, we tell people often, we are a gospel-centered church. That's what that means. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the heartbeat 
of our church. And the reason that is is because there is no true church that is not rooted in and centered on that gospel. There is no true church that's not rooted in and centered on that gospel. This morning we get to confess this gospel together again through the Lord's Supper. We refer to it as communion because this is a time when we get to commune in this gospel together as members of Christ's church, as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Jesus gave this meal to his church as a perpetual reminder of who he is and what he's done to bring us into his kingdom. He is the Son of God who took on flesh, who lived a sinless life and then died as a sacrifice for our sins. When we, when we take that bread, we say his body was broken for us under the judgment of God. When we drink the cup, we remember his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we declare together that whoever has repented and trusted in him will be saved and is a citizen of God's kingdom and a member of his church. So this morning, if you have not believed or if you're living in unrepentant sin, then I encourage you to just let the elements pass by as we pass them and to use this time to pray and consider the question that Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Consider that question this morning and pray before the Lord about your heart. We encourage you to repent and believe in him today. But this morning, if you confess with us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who gave himself for us, then Christ himself invites you to join in taking the supper.